That's the biggest misconception. They think that, oh, we've got 50 years until sea level rise swamps Miami. Well, we don't have 50 years. Some really bad things are happening right now because of climate change. Category six hurricanes, we're seeing heat waves, we're seeing wildfires that are four times the strength that they were before. But that hasn't sunk into people yet, that it is here now. It is not 50 years from now. That is by far the biggest misconception. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. I was really happy to have the chance to talk to Jeff Nesbitt. Jeff is the executive director of Climate Nexus, a climate communications enterprise that works to change the conversation on climate change and clean energy from an argument to a constructive search for solutions. Jeff is the author of Poison Tea, and This is the Way the World Ends. He was formerly the director of legislative and public affairs at the National Science Foundation and also served as a senior communications official at the Food and Drug Administration and for the vice president during the H.W. Bush administration. He was previously a national journalist with Knight Ritter and others. Jeff is a professional communicator on an existential issue and a great guest. You should listen. So after my sponsor, my interview with Jeff Nesbitt and Climate Nexus. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from Time Plots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. Time Plots Library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Uh, I hate the technical side of these <laughs> interviews. Some, something goes wrong every now and then. It drives me crazy. It, it happens to the best of us. Yesterday, I had gotten Joe Biden's national climate advisor, Gina McCarthy, to keynote you know, and preview the executive orders on climate to 500 business leaders and mayors and CEOs and everybody. So Gina gets on the call. She's at the White House in a skiff, and she can't get her Zoom to work. So, oh, no. And so she's, everybody's waiting for her to do it. And so finally, I just told her, because I was in the, the Zoom green room, I said, look, just dial the number on your cell phone. So she stared in the, into the screen and then talked over her cell phone for uh, audio. <laughs> yeah. so, I, I, well, <laughs> if it can happen at that level, it can happen to little old me. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so <laughs> I much appreciate you taking the time today. My pleasure. Could I get you to introduce yourself and give me a quick biography? My name is Jeff Nesbitt. My current day job is I'm the executive director of Climate Nexus, which deals with the climate issue. And I started that nine years ago after I left the National Science Foundation, where I ran their legislative and public affairs office. I've had a bunch of big jobs, including being the communications director to the vice president of the United States in a previous administration. I also ran public affairs at the FDA way back when, and my old boss, David Kessler, is now 
President Biden's chief scientific officer for their COVID response teams. So there you go. A pretty good career. And sounds like you're happy being where you are right now. I am happy being where I am right now. I, we're making progress on the climate issues. So yeah, absolutely. We've been making progress in some ways outside of government and maybe in the last few days within at least the federal government. Yes. Funny that you should mention that. One of the, the coalitions that my organization was instrumental in starting was the We Are Still In movement, which formed right after President then President Trump withdrew the United States from the Paris Climate Agreement. And there has been a great deal of subnational movement on the climate issue. And now that's being joined with uh, the federal government action in the United States. So yeah, there has been quite a bit of action. I like to ask people just a little bit about their the path that they took to this. And you, you gave me a, a brief version, but you know, where'd you grow up and how did your early education go? Well, that is a really good question. I like that question. So I am a Hoosier. I was born and raised in Indiana. So um, my parents were juniors in college at DePauw University in Greencastle, Indiana, when I was born. So spent the first first two years of my life, so I'm told, running around a Quonset hunt off campus at DePauw University uh, with very little supervision. <laughs> So I think I think that's what imprinted that may explain on me. a few things, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I was also told that I didn't I didn't say a word. I would just practice in my crib until I was two and a half, and my first words were actually a complete sentence. I had clocked my cousin with a baseball bat, so I ran inside and I said, "I hit him with the bat." That was my wow. first. Yeah. So, is that your personality to be well prepared before you announce something? It is actually, yes. And that's, yes, that is actually, I practice and practice and practice and practice before I do something publicly. So, and, and didn't your career start in the journalism space? You studied journalism and then went into journalism? Yeah, I did. I, so, my first career iteration was as a, a journalist and then a national journalist. And I, had, I worked for some really interesting places. Jack Anderson, who was a syndicated columnist. I was the editor of Public Citizen Magazine for Ralph Nader. I helped the ABC News try to stand up satellite news channels to compete with CNN, which was a colossal failure. But my job was a lot of fun. I also worked for Knight Ritter Newspapers in their Washington bureau. And uh, I kind of missed Knight Ritter Newspapers. They owned all of the the, the premier newspapers in each of the red and blue states across the country. And I would argue it's, you know, we miss them these days. We miss having those, you know, big newspapers in those key states with a distinctive voice. So I did that for, for the first part of my career. And then I jumped out into government. I went to be a press secretary for senator because uh, I was foolish enough to think I could make him president. And I got close, but was that senator a Indiana senator? It was an uh, Indiana senator who nobody had ever heard of before. Yes. Yeah. With uh, good hair and a, uh, <laughs> a smile and a questionable spelling instinct, if I remember. Well, and, and, is that not true? <laughs> well, it, it is It is actually not true. Actually, and I hardly ever tell this story, but I'm happy to tell it to you. So the, the Great Potato Institute was actually mostly a setup. And I was actually partially responsible for the mistake. So I, Digger Phelps, who had been Notre Dame's basketball coach, advanced this event in Trenton, New Jersey. And he rather foolishly allowed the other party to basically create the event. <laughs> 
So the word potato was actually deliberately misspelled on the cue cards with an extra E at the end. So when the kid spelled it correctly at the blackboard and CNN had been tipped off that it was going to go down. So it was on CNN within 15 minutes. The kid got the potato right, but it had been misspelled on the cue card. And you can actually see it in the video where he's staring, the vice president's staring at the cue card and it, and, he's, and you could see it going through his head like, is it really with an E or not? Some some all words have an E at the end, some don't. And so he, well, maybe, maybe he yeah. spelled his name quail without the E at the end. There you go. Yeah. There you go. Anyway, but so, but, but the thing is, once those things stick, man, they just stick forever. So, you know, once you're the butt of a late night comedy routine, you're forever the, the butt of a late night comedy routine. So you never escape it. So, But that must have been quite a job to be communications director for a vice president. What did you learn from doing that? Uh, it was quite a job, actually. And it's interesting. I've talked to some of my folks who came after me. I actually was had to create a communications director job for a vice president way back when. It actually had not existed at the time when I came into that job. And the way I was able to create the job is what the modern communications directors for vice presidents do now, which is to be behind the scenes and to work with all the agencies and departments in, a, in the federal government and to work with the White House communications team to basically allow the vice president who chairs usually two or three big councils, like the National Space Council or some other council that's been created, you then try to, to work behind the scenes on behalf of the White House uh, for those councils and for the, that interagency process. Um, it's a thankless task, really sort of god-awful job to do, but somebody's got to do it. And so that's what you know people continue to do to these days. Communications directors in the White House, it's not Jen Psaki's job where she, you know, the press secretary stands up and talks to the reporters. It's you're behind the scenes trying to figure out how to make things work for the public. Climate has become so partisan, unfortunately, I bet people might be surprised that someone running a climate group like you do came out of working for a Republican vice president. I, I also talked to Jerry Taylor at the Scannon Center, who also comes from the conservative side and is interested in climate. And there's a lot of people. What was your path from the White House on that side through to Climate Nexus? You know, and, and Jerry's a great friend. Jerry and I have talked a lot about this, actually. My path is is actually quite a bit simpler than his is, which I'll get to in just a second. I mean, Jerry's, you know, he's got a brother who's still a climate denier, and he really had to, like, wrestle with it in a way that's quite a bit different for me. I've been fortunate in that regardless of where I've been working in government or with the media, I genuinely believe that science, evidence, and data always wins. It always speaks first. It speaks loudest. It wins every fight. So if you start there and you carry that into any policy or political fight, you're going to be on safe ground. So I've done that my entire career. I did that when I was a journalist. I was fearless as a journalist. I've done that in politics. I'm basically fearless in politics and I take enormous risks. I mean, I was the guy who convinced David Kessler and the FDA to regulate the tobacco industry, for instance, once upon a time. That psychotic idea was mine. I fought for it for years and now it's the law of the land. So but you start with what does the science say? What does the data say? What does the evidence say? And then you begin to work your way around that. So if, when you look at the climate issue, it's really quite straightforward. We know what the science says. We've known for a long time what the science says. Where it has been bollocked up is that corporate interests for their own purposes for a very long time decided to 
inject doubt about the science in the public sphere, which is always wrong and always nefarious. And that's what happened here. So um, we've spent a long time trying to correct that problem. It's mostly corrected now. Um, but now you're going to see great battles over are the solutions to climate change too costly? That's what the Republican Party now fights about, which, in my opinion, is wrong, is dead wrong and may be one of the issues that costs them their status um, as a major national party in the United States. But that's where the, you know, the fight has moved away from science now to what the, the economics of this issue. So that mostly explains why I've done it. I like to take on big issues. I've always, you know, wanted to take on big issues, but you start with science and then you work your way out from there. Along the way, you seem to have been continually writing novels <laughs> for, for adults and teens. How does that fit into the career or is that sort of on the side? It's on the side, but it's actually integrated. I mean, for better or worse, whether it's a good idea and actually all my kids, and eventually my grandkids will be the same way. They're, they say, Dad, you're not telling us yet another story, are you? I mean, I tell stories all the time, constantly. My four-year-old grandson, we wander through Golden Gate Park and I tell him legends about trolls and dwarves. I'm constantly telling stories. Because I argue that storytelling is the way we learn. Um, long before there were doctors and lawyers and businessmen and CEOs, there were storytellers. The human race um, learns from stories. It's how we advance. It's how the hum how human civilization advances. So I've been telling stories for as long as I can remember. Uh, I did it as a journalist. Then I did it in politics. And so, you know, writing books is a natural outgrowth of that. You can even tell stories. Other, I mean, I just, I'm about ready to release my first music album that was fun to do during the pandemic. So I've worked with a producer to, and so I'm trying to tell stories through music. Uh, I've got a, I've written a screenplay that some folks are going to take a look at. It's just fun to try your hand at different storytelling in different venues. A great story well told can travel quite a long way. If I were going to read one of your novels, what would you recommend? My effort to be J.R.R. Tolkien, it's um, called The Books of L. The Books of L, E-L. It's a fantasy novel, but it's three, three books in one. I created an entire other world where magic works and three kids drop in. Anyway, it's just a fun, fun, fun book. Not as widely read. But also, there's a book called Absolutely Perfect Summer, which is also for kids. It's just a heck of a lot of fun. It's about a about two brothers, a 12-year-old who is perfect at Little League. And, and by the end of the season, it's only a 16-game season, so it's actually possible. He's batting a 1,000, and the media catches on. And by the end of the summer, he's become this uh, sort of media phenomenon with everybody paying attention to whether this 12-year-old kid's going to wind up perfect to the plate by the end of the summer. So it's, it's just a lot of fun as a baseball book. Sounds like it. How did you land at Climate Nexus? What was it when you arrived? It wasn't anything when I arrived. I was at the <laughs> I was at the National Science Foundation. I was running was running their external offices, their legislative offices, which means I was their chief lobbyist, and then their public affairs offices, which made me their chief public affairs officer. And I got to know all of the independent climate scientists, all funded by NSF. And after I'd been there for a number of years. I just really wanted to take on the climate issue. I didn't like where it was going. I didn't like the the artificial debate over whether the science was real or not. I wanted to help do my part to help end that debate. Um, so I left and with some funding from some foundations, started Climate Nexus from scratch. And it's designed to be a foundation-funded nonprofit that helps the media cover the issue. So, And that's what we've done for nine years. We work very closely with media everywhere on the issue and have for a long time. So, uh, How many people work? 
there now? Uh, you know, a few dozen. It's a pretty big place, to be honest. The easiest way to think about it is it's like a nonprofit public relations firm. So I sort of the shorthand that most people refer to it as. Got it. On the show, I talked to Tony Luzerowitz and Tony, Ed Maybach. Oh, two of my best buddies, man. Tony and <laughs> Ed, are, Ed and I go way back. Ed and I have been in the tobacco wars, the food wars, now the climate wars. Oh, two of the smartest people on the planet. Yes. Uh, seems like the same world as you. That's what I was it, thinking. It yes. Tell me a little more about the world of climate communications right now. So there's you guys, like what are the groups, what are the entities that matter that are uh, working in this arena? Uh, honestly, it's a pretty small crowd. There are only a handful of other people. Like, uh, you know, you ought to talk to Kaylee Kreider, for instance, who was Al Gore's communications director and policy director for eight years after he left office. Kaylee has spent a lot of her time on the climate issue. She's a you know communicator. There are a handful of people who work in the climate communication space who really know, you're right, this is maybe the most polarized issue in America right now. Which it really should not be. It's, it drives me crazy that it is. Uh, it really should not be. And honestly, I'm going to be, I'm just going to call it as it is. The reason why it is, is largely because of the Republican Party. They chose to polarize this issue. They chose to make it tribal. They chose to ignore the science or willfully ignore the science and then, you know, turn it to their own political purposes. I mean, they demonized the BTU tax way back when. I talk about that in my first chapter of one of my books, Poison Tea. They then later uh, demonized it in a second round to try to flip the house. And now it, the issue's done a 180 on the Republican Party. Now, to be a climate denier and to not acknowledge climate is hurting the Republican Party because so many young people get it that they're going to lose everybody under the age of 30, almost on this issue alone. So the reason why it's so polarized is because for whatever reason, the Republican Party, starting about 20 years ago, decided to polarize it. You mentioned Poison Tea. What books have you written that are relevant to the climate fight? And what do they say? Yeah, the last one you should is definitely worth taking a look at. It's called This is the Way the World Ends. It's from St. Martin's Press. There are excerpts all over the place. There are excerpts in the New York Times and CNN, other places. But what I tried to do with This is the Way the World Ends is I go through the science. What do we know about science? And, I, and, and not just things that are going to happen 30 or 40 years from now, but what's happening right now? Like, why do we know that the third pole glaciers are melting? at such an accelerated pace. And what does that mean for water resources? Why do we know that every country in the sub-Saharan region is in dire straits right now over water resource issues? What do we know about extreme weather events that are dumping massive amounts of rain in a 24-hour period? What explains that? Why is that happening? I go through that in the first part of the book. Then I, in the second part, I go through the geopolitical implications. You know, why did Yemen civil society collapse because they ran out of water? What does that mean? So I go through the geopolitical implications. Why is China buying every soybean on, on earth now? It's because of climate change. So I go through that. And then at the end of the book, I describe why we need big systemic change within the next 10 to 15 years if we're going to find our way out of this a very, very deep hole we've, we've dug for ourselves. So what advice do you and your team offer to the media? Like, tell me a little about what does that interaction look like? What are you telling people? What's getting conveyed? The reason why the media enjoys interacting with us is because we're behind the scenes. 
you you pick any issue related to climate change, whether it's economics or financial or political or activist or science, we're going to find sort of the best three or four experts by far who really jump out out at you and work with them, make them available. And it's it's sort of a, a modern day version of a science center in the United States. We make those avail- experts available. We, we go through the thousand page reports to make sure that everybody understands what's relevant from them. So it's, it's an easy place to, to come find, you know, what's really going on and who can we interview? Who can we talk to? Why does this particular aspect of this issue matter? In my view, that's the way you make yourself relevant to the media, which is the translator of some very complicated stuff for the public. You mentioned that we are still in movement, but how did you folks beyond that react to Trump coming into office and taking so many actions in the government with science, pulling out of the Paris Accords, so many very forceful actions to try to dismantle our national response to the climate crisis? I remember some very active discussions early on where there was hope among some that people like Gary Cohn and even Ivanka Trump and others would moderate the White House response to the climate issue. There actually was an effort to convince Trump not to withdraw from the Paris Climate Agreement, and then it collapsed. There was some hope that maybe it wouldn't be this bad. And I think it was probably misplaced and misguided hope, as, and now we can see it was, because the Trump White House folks, because they weren't paying any attention or didn't care or just, just allowed folks to do this, pretty extreme ideologues at places like the EPA and the Interior Department and elsewhere just went after every regulation they could possibly go after uh, with very little oversight. And it was like a wrecking crew everywhere you saw. So which is one of the reasons why this new administration like already has that list and they're looking at every single one of those. Every single place where somebody tried to take a wrecking ball to it, they're they're trying to pull that wrecking ball away from the from the rubble. Early in the primary process when there were 25 Democratic candidates, there were multiple positions on climate. Biden was not probably thought of as the most passionate in that. He's put it pretty front and center out of the gate. What are your expectations besides undoing Trump bad out of the new administration? He's definitely put it front and center. I mean, if you look at the central messaging from the Biden-Harris administration now, climate is one of the four crises. They talk about four crises all the time now. Climate is one of them. They fully intend to deal with it, both looking backward in terms of what the Trump administration did, but also looking forward. They've appointed not one, but two powerhouse advisors in John Kerry and Gina McCarthy to deal with this issue. So they have absolutely picked up the gauntlet. And I think there's the reason why. If you look at and we, we've done some polling, others have done polling, Tony's done polling, Ed's done polling, we've done polling. Climate is a winning issue for the Democratic Party now. It's what's called a wedge issue. It's pretty clear now that it is. It's one of the reasons why the Republicans uh, finally have no choice but to deal with it. They felt like they could ignore it for years. Now they can't ignore it anymore. So they're going to have to figure out how to deal with it. And so what that means is that you're going to see action on climate and clean energy related topics everywhere. You're going to see a climate office at the Treasury Department. Janet Yellen completely gets this issue. You're going to see it at FERC. You're going to see it at Commerce. You're going to see it at the Agriculture Department. And you're also going to, of course, see it at DOE and 
EPA and the traditional places where climate has been dealt with, because uh, I have a bit of knowledge about how this is going down. Joe Biden genuinely wants to hear what scientists have to say about this issue. I, my old boss, David Kessler, and he said this publicly on Rachel Maddow and uh, elsewhere, so I'm not telling secrets out of school here, has briefed President Biden probably 70 times now. And in every single briefing, he goes deeply with his questions. He wants to know what does the science say? What are the experts have to say on this? And then incorporates it into the way he looks at these issues. By the way, that is so weird, isn't it? Uh, well, it's refreshing to me. <laughs> like, can I just say how refreshing that is? I'm trying to to grasp this. I, I didn't. I'd lost the idea that presidents would pay attention, listen, and maybe have their minds changed. They do. David says, I mean, a 30-minute briefing will turn to an, into a 90-minute briefing where he continues to ask questions. And that's why th there is a very, very sharp integrated effort to deal with the COVID pandemic right now. It's because, you know, there is a, there is a big team of experts paying really close attention to this and not just spinning things out for the public. So, and I think it's probably because Joe Biden has been in government for his entire career. He knows how to move the levers of the federal government and is not afraid to allow people to, to move those levers on his behalf. What happened with the climate issues is that people like John Kerry were advising him. People like Gina McCarthy were advising him. Others were advising him. And over time, while he may not have initially wanted to pay that much attention to this issue, over time he said, oh, I bet I'd better pay attention to this issue because it has this whipsaw effect in every other area, in the economy, in you know, financial stability, in national security questions. You can sort of see how this works its way through all these other issues. And once he sort of grasped that, it's like, well, of course, this needs to be a top tier um, issue. In real time, you saw this, this educational process for him um, over probably a six-month period. That's why you're seeing these big moves early on at the start of this administration. I guess I have some faith that this administration will move policy in the right direction in this area. I'm less hopeful, but still hopeful that we'll be able to sell that. I mean, you, you said it's a good wedge issue, but you know, the previous president, if anything was strong about him, was the ability to move some public opinion his way by shouting about it, whether it was based on real information or not. Do you think that they're set up in the Biden administration to sell what they're doing and to make it clear to the populace at large that this has to be done, that the right things are being done, that this is benefiting people locally and, and individually as well as internationally? To Democrats and independents, yes, I do. To Republicans, that's a completely different discussion. The entire country is going to watch this. Donald Trump, he may have lost the presidency, but he hasn't gone away. The battle for the soul of the Republican Party is playing out in real time right now. And as of right now, as of today, while we're talking, Trumpism is winning inside of the Republican Party. So I think for the foreseeable future, the Lisa Murkowski's of the world, the Mitt Romney's of the world, both of whom fully understand the climate issue and would really like to move the Republican Party toward acting on climate if they could politically don't have a chance to do so at this point in time. Will they in the future? I guess we'll see. But as of right now, you're, you're exactly right, 
sort of the Trumpist version of the Republican Party is ascendant, will be for the foreseeable future. And what that means for an issue like climate is that it will remain polarized, so which means that Democrats and independents are going to have to act. Um, and responsible CEOs and responsible civil society leadership and, and all of the rest is going to have to you know, act pretty forcefully um, and wait for the, some elements of the Republican Party to catch up to them. How does the change in administration and their orientation on climate change your job? Um, it makes it both easier and harder all at the same time. Um, is that the, possible? Um, the easy part is there are a lot of really talented folks inside of this administration that we've worked with for years years and years and years who really know what they're doing and they're working at the state department they're working at the white house they're working at epa they're working at the department of energy they're working across all of these governments there are also lots of partners in the civil society and business space that we've worked with for years they all want to pull in the same direction that's the easy part the hard part is that there is a big pent-up demand to act and so everybody wants to see real movement real action and that is really hard difficult complicated work. Like how do you establish um, what the U.S. target is in 2030 for the Paris Climate Agreement? Just to use one example, there's got to be quite a lot of work that goes into that like right now, because that's probably going to have to kick out of the system by the middle of April when there's a, a summit of world leaders that John Kerry will lead for President Biden. As one example, there's, so there's a ton of very hard work that's got to be done or started in the next two to three months. I have a sense that there's also a counter movement taking place in the fossil fuel sector and elsewhere to try to derail some of this or make political hay in the other direction. What do you see happening to fight what the administration would like to do? Yes. And to borrow the phrase of your podcast, there is a clear, great battlefield um, emerging. And I'll just give you one example. The oil and gas industry that makes a lot of this money off of natural gas is now in a race with the renewable energy side of the equation. That battlefield, it's on full display right now. And you're seeing it in advertisements, you're seeing in paid media, you're seeing it in narrative messaging and, and, and coverage of this. I mean, I believe some elements of the oil and gas industry have already sued the Biden administration over these executive orders looking at leasing and permitting on public lands for for oil and gas exploration. The folks who have been promoting natural gas as a bridge fuel, which I would argue is not a bridge fuel, that bridge, if it ever existed, no longer exists because a natural gas plant will be cost ineffective within five years compared to a big solar power plant. So that battlefield is in full display right now. And and yes, there are folks who are taking a look at how do you talk about this? How do you engage with the public on this? How do you engage with both political parties on this? So there's both an inside and an outside game being worked on right now. To what extent do you get involved in electoral stuff? Yeah, we don't. We focus on basically what looks like educational materials. So experts, whether they're economic experts or science experts or business experts. And that's what we spend all of our time doing. But is all of that fodder for electoral politics? Absolutely. You know, we understand how this how this works. 
So anything that we're working on is going to be, is going to, you know, will, will likely be used in electoral politics. That's just the nature of the beast. I think anybody who, who operates on an issue that tends to be polarized fully understands how it plays out on the national political scene. You won't be successful in what you're doing if you don't at least understand um, how that works. Tell me more about Climate Nexus. Like, give me some examples of the work you're doing so that I have a better sense of who you are. I think the easiest way to understand it is um, if people are trying to understand what do the American people think about this issue? Well, we we do a bunch of polling and then we'll make that polling available to partners and, and in some respects to the media. Or if there is there are wildfires that have destroyed 5 million acres in the United States, which has just occurred in 2020, you know, 5 million acres uh, burned up in California, including some of the sequoias. Is there a climate connection to that? We'll pull together all the best science on it, pull together all the best experts, make them available to the media, make them available to partners so that everybody understands why 5 million acres burned up in California in 2020. When the media covers that issue, they have the context. So it's not just hanging out there as if this was you know, an anomaly. There's a reason why 5 million acres burned in California or why Colorado saw its, its worst wildfire season in history. There are reasons for that. And so you know, we tend to explain those reasons through written materials, through visual materials, through graphics, through experts, you name it, whatever it takes to basically make sure everybody understands why these things are happening. Because our, our theory of change is once you understand the truth, once you understand why something is happening, others who are going to take that knowledge and, and use it will, will have the best available. So that's basically how we do what we do. You've mentioned a couple of times your partners outside of media. Who are you talking about? Anybody who wants to take on the issue. So the We Are Still In movement is a good example. And they're pro- most of the Fortune 500 companies are in the We Are Still In coalition. If Microsoft or Walmart or Google or Facebook or any of the smaller companies um, that aren't on the Fortune 50 want to take on the climate issue, they want to improve their sustainability um, supply chain, we're happy to like try to work with them. If you're an NGO and you want to take on the issue and work on it, we're happy to work with you. And honestly, I would say the climate movement writ large across the board is now much, much broader than just the environmental movement. I think one of the big mistakes that the Republican Party has made in the last 10 years is not recognizing that. They continue to demonize this as a far left, environmental left issue. It's not, hasn't been for a long time. And I think it's one of the reasons why they're losing this battle in the streets. So that's what I mean by that. Partners, we're not able to like work with individuals because that's pretty difficult. We don't have a grassroots organization. But if, if, if you're a group that wants to take on this issue and take it seriously and try to work on it, we're, we're happy to, to try to talk to you about it. Do you feel optimistic or pessimistic about the climate future? Or are we doomed as a planet? Are we going to pull out of it without extinction or humongous change. What do you see in the future? Well, you know, it's interesting. I just, I agreed to, to debate Bjorn Lomberg recently at the Reason Foundation. It was actually a fun debate. He and I went at it for two hours. Where Bjorn comes from is he says, look, the planet's going to, you know, don't overreact and crush the world economy by taking action. And I think he's dead wrong on that. I mean, the truth is, if we don't do something, 
the economy is going to be crushed. It's just a question of of how how fast and how big and how much the devastation is going to be to the global economy. Um, starting probably ten years from now, you're already starting to see impacts now. So, I'm actually pretty hopeful. Let me back up just a second. I'll say one thing: the planet's going to be fine. It's been here for a long time. It's going to be fine. We might as, not as a rock. The rock, as a rock. Be here. rock's going to be here. <laughs> the planet. Some ec- ecosystems are going to survive. We might not be because when you get to a four C or a five C C world, which is eight, nine, ten degrees Fahrenheit, that's not an habitable place for the human species. So that's what we're really talking about: is making sure that the ecosystems on earth are suitable for the human species and for all species for that matter, because half of all species are experiencing local extinctions right now, thanks to climate change everywhere. But I'm actually really hopeful. And and here's why I'm hopeful. When I was at the National Science Foundation, I had a chance to talk to everybody who was there at the beginning of the creation of the internet. And most people don't know this, but Google's first money came from the National Science Foundation. It didn't come from private investors. Google went from Google Inc. in 1995 to a world-straddling company within 10 to 15 years. Big change can occur overnight once things start to happen. And we're starting to see the equivalent of Moore's Law in the clean energy and clean tech space uh, start to emerge right now. That's why I have hope. I actually think that the business community, the financial community, along with everybody else, now gets this, you're going to start to see big changes occur. And will it occur fast enough to forestall some pretty awful impacts on Earth? I think that's the open question. But I'm, I'm pretty hopeful, actually. I think within the next 10 to 15 years, you're going to see a massive shift toward a clean energy economy. And there are going to be some big winners in that shift. Some losers, but some also really, really big winners. And millions and millions and millions of new and different jobs that don't exist now come into being. I'm curious how you view at this point the Green New Deal. How was that as a messaging idea and what about the substance? We've actually polled this pretty extensively from the beginning. There are a couple of things going on with the Green New Deal. The first is most people who know about the Green New Deal got their information from Fox News, which covered it relentlessly, just relentlessly. They just constantly covered the Green New Deal. So you have that perspective. Um, So a lot of what people heard about the Green New Deal heard about it from that. But the other very interesting thing about it is when you pull apart some some of the individual elements of the Green New Deal and you actually ask people about it, the individual elements of it, they like a lot. It's when it's all packaged up together that it became this battle and it's sort of a battle royale. So what's happened over the last year or so is that if you're a Democrat, you're going to pull into your armamentarian and your portfolio much of what you see in the Green New Deal, but you're not necessarily going to call it the Green New Deal. If you're a Republican and you want to demonize this, you absolutely call it the Green New Deal. Anything that happens, oh, that's just the Green New Deal. So you see both of those things going on at the same time. But at its core, much of what you see in the Green New Deal is what most ordinary Americans would actually support. It's an interesting dynamic in terms of what the financial sector thinks of it, what the political sector thinks of it, what the civil society sector thinks of it, and what you know the two major political parties think of think about it. Another thing I've seen out there is sunrise movement. So there's a direct action sort of 
uh, social movement based entity that's working to, you know, mostly young people working to highlight this. Is that help or hurt? It's clearly had an impact. Uh, there's no question. We actually work with nearly all of the youth leaders. It's genuine, spontaneous, authentic, everywhere. And what the Sunrise Movement has done is tapped into that authenticity. It is real. And it's one of the reasons why the Republican Party uh, leadership in Washington is now trying to desperately figure out how to speak to younger people about this issue because they've almost lost it already with most young people. And the Sunrise Movement is reflective of that. Now, the flip side of that is that when you're younger, I and mean, I was young, I mean, when I took on the tobacco industry, I was in my late 20s. When I was you know, at the FDA, I was in my early 30s. So when you're younger, you just charge into the world to change it. That's what you do. You only, it's only later in life that you learn that it, it sometimes takes a lot of work and years of digging and working on an issue before you can actually move the needle and stuff. You need all of it. So what the Sunrise Movement has done, they operate in both the political and electoral space, but also in the issue space. And they've worked really hard to get folks to pay attention to this issue. And that's a good thing. You, you want that. Do you think that that idea that you have that the Republican Party is feeling the heat from young people, does, is that translatable into enough pressure on Republican representatives to move policy? It can be. And I'll tell you how some of that works. The old traditional Republican Party was very responsive to big business interests. I think that's true to some extent now today, not as true as it was, say, 15 years ago. But they they listen to corporate CEOs and big business who spend all the lobbying dollars. If young people are putting massive pressure on consumer-facing companies, that's clearly going to have an impact. One of the reasons why the big four banks are you know feel like they've got to take some action. They're getting pressure from younger people. So uh, you ask any corporate CEO, what are they most afraid of? It's things they can't control. And one of the things you can't control is when millions of young people come at you on social media or digital media, because you can't control it. So when that happens, they're going to pay attention and then they're going to tell the Republican party leadership, oh my gosh, uh, we need to deal with this. That's just one example of how this actually works. I think that in terms of changing the entrenched Republican leadership in Washington on this issue, I think it's going to take a handful of times and places where senators and governors and members of Congress who've come up through the ranks and want to deal with the issue basically take power at the upper echelons and tell everybody else, we are going to deal with this issue finally. Uh, we're not there yet, I don't think. Someday we will be, but I, I think that's what it's going to take. Well, right now, I think we're going the other way. The Republican Party seems like it continues to be purging out everyone but the deniers. <laughs> yeah, I again, it's what we talked about earlier, at least for the foreseeable future, the populist, nativist, nationalist, Trumpist elements of the Republican Party are completely ascendant. And how long that will last, I guess we'll see. And so climate and several other issues are trapped inside of that warfare. I think that assessment is correct. It, it could also change quickly, though. I mean, you never know. Yeah, I mean, I guess we'll see. If a citizen wants to learn more about climate 
What should they read? What resources are out there to educate yourself? I would shamelessly tell them to either listen to the audiobook of This is the Way the World Works, uh, This is the Way the World Ends, or read my book. I mean, seriously, you get, you'll get a very quick primer. The, all the notes are in the back if you want to go to the sites. There are some really great storytellers around this issue right now. Bill Ware on CNN is great at this now. Jeff Berardelli on CBS News is great at this. Read any climate story in the New York Times these days any climate story in the Washington Post, and quite frankly, any climate story in the Wall Street Journal that's not on the editorial page, and you're going to understand this issue. Or read Rob Meyer in The Atlantic, or read you know any of the journalists who've been at this issue now for a long time. They know what they're doing. They know how to cover this issue. And just read up on those, uh, you know, among those journalists who know how to translate this issue. I would start there. Read the best books and read the best journalists. Makes sense. What do you think is the biggest misconception that the public has about climate? That it's some distant threat way off in the future. Most people have no idea that it is here right now. The wolf is at the door right now. It was just, again, why I wrote the book that I did last year. That's the biggest misconception. They think that, oh, we've got 50 years until sea level rise swamps Miami. Well, we don't have 50 years. Some really bad things are happening right now because of climate change. Category six hurricanes, we're seeing heat waves, we're seeing extreme heat days, we're seeing wildfires that are four times the strength that they were before. But that hasn't sunk into people yet, that it is here now. It is not 50 years from now. That is by far the biggest misconception. And a close second is that the the scientists, and not just climate scientists, but all scientists fully understand that it's here now and that climate change not only is real, but is here right now um, that, and that there is a consensus, which is very rare for the scientific community right now as well. Both of those, the public by and large doesn't quite understand that. Is there a question I didn't ask you that I should have? No, you've covered the waterfront, to be perfectly honest. You've hit on some very interesting topics here. Well, you went right from sea level rising to me covering the waterfront. That was very deaf. <laughs> Did you like that? There you go. <laughs> uh, Jeff, it's an honor to talk to you. Anything else you want to say? Nope. Uh, it was a pleasure talking. I enjoyed the conversation. That was Jeff Nesbitt. Jeff is at climatenexus.org. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.